0: Listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of Libya Study series and was recorded on April 26th, 2022, by the Centre d'études maghrebines à Tunis, SEMA. In this podcast, Neely Egan, the Semat cultural history of tourism researcher, interviews Reem Forjani, an Ames cultural heritage fellow, about her research in the old city of Tripoli, a critical analysis of heritage preservation in Libya.
1: Thank you for joining us today, Reem, and talking about critical heritage studies, as well as your work on the Tripoli Medina. So just to get started, can you tell us a bit more about the difference between heritage studies and critical heritage studies, or what is specifically interesting, I guess, about the critical approach to the vast field of heritage studies.
2: Thank you, Nelly. So critical heritage studies builds on and argues against the conventional approaches in heritage studies. So critical heritage studies criticizes the exclusive way by which heritage studies is usually approached. So especially heritage practice. So the conservation and management of heritage, which conventionally is quite exclusive. It focuses on expert opinions and state preferences, but it often leaves out local community and lay people and the public, the non-expert opinions unless involved in education and raising awareness, which is still a top-down approach. So the critical heritage studies instead reverses the, uh, argues for reversing the the approach, therefore argues for a bottom-up management and a bottom-up definition of heritage and approach to heritage. Critical heritage studies argues that heritage belongs to the people. So it is often referred to as a democratization of heritage approach in that it advocates for local communities to be included, not only actually included in the process of understanding what a heritage site means, its values, also the priorities of its values. So for example, is it primarily an economical value of a site, or is it the historical value, functional, etc. Not only the inclusion of local communities in these kinds of decisions, but also allowing them the space to use it themselves and preserve it or not use it or not preserve it, and how to use it and how to preserve it. So critical heritage studies is also very similar to previous very similar discourses uh, in the, um, so the democratization of the history field, for example, in the 60s, and the democratization of the culture field in the 60s, also in the 70s. And um, it's relatively emerging. So it's been around, especially over the past decade, more scholarship, more literature recently. It's increasing in number and range.
1: So, and speaking of some emerging work in heritage studies, we'd love to hear more about your work on the old city of Tripoli and how your approach has been informed by this growing understanding of critical heritage studies.
2: My work in critical heritage studies began quite uh, as a coincidence in 2011, and I later found out that there was an academic field called critical heritage studies, which was what I was doing. In 2011, the revolution in Libya and the Arab uprising in the region I had just returned to Libya and I was raised abroad. So, while abroad, my grandparents used to visit and they used to tell me about the old city of Tripoli where they grew up. And it sounded like a very uh, culturally vibrant, almost fairy tale like site. And based on that, I had constructed an image in my mind. However, when I came back uh, to Libya and I visited the site for the first time right after the revolution in 2011, it was very different in reality than the image I had constructed in my mind. And because part of my personal identity was connected to that site, then I felt a responsibility and an urge that, no, that this site means something to the people like myself and what it means to us is different to what the state interprets. So the old city at the time was neglected by the state for various reasons. The government at the time did not value the site for two reasons. One was political actually, because it was very selective towards the heritage it valued. uh, And that was part of its strategy to overpower social groups so that it remained in power, the dictatorship, of course, at the time. And one of the groups that it intentionally overpowered were the Tripolitans, the elite of the capital, who were rich, well-educated, and they imposed a threat to it sustaining its its power at the time. So part of the strategy was to uh, neglect and silence and weaken the identity symbols of these groups, similar to the Amazil, for example, of Libya. And because the old city of Tripoli is the symbol because it is the historical core of the capital and all Tripoli townspeople from the city of Tripoli have identity that root back to the site, then that was the place to begin by neglecting and silencing and weakening the identity and the existence and the right to belong for this social group. So the while the site was neglected and devalued by the state, local communities like myself. And of course, when we talk about local communities, we're talking about different groups. But uh, the group that I associate myself to, which are people that, like the second generation and the third generation who are relatively educated and understand the value of heritage, the economic value of heritage, the historical, the educated, the social value also of heritage, bringing people together and being kind of a reference for a community and. A reason why we feel like we belong to each other and also why we belong to a place. So there were two very different interpretations. And therefore, since 2011, we began activities on the site. not really aware that this was the word, but we were advocating for the preservation of the identity symbol, the heritage site, as an identity symbol and also as a proof of history for the whole region, the whole Mediterranean region, the old city being previously a Phoenician site and a Roman site. So then I continued with my master's and then my PhD. And then I (laughs) realized that there was an emerging field at the time in parallel called critical heritage studies. And it basically was based on experiences just like my own. It was based on a scholar from, from Australia She was the one who first really pushed forward with that, and she established an association in the Association of Critical Heritage Studies, and uh, scholarship increased, The more literature, more research, more conferences about this, and, you know, ripple effect, and and the, the discourse began to grow. And of course, now that I know that this field exists, and I'm reading a lot about it, and and participating in conferences and learning more. And therefore, I this really informs my work nowadays, but also vice versa. Because Great. the good thing about the process that I found myself in is that I'm not only in academia, but I'm between academia and practice. And so I can see on ground what works and what doesn't. For example, one of the main questions is, If we're arguing for the democratization of heritage, doesn't that mean then whatever the people decide would be the thing to do? But what if two issues? What if issue number one is the people decide that a Roman ruin, for example, is not valuable for them at that specific time from that specific perspective of the people or even the person speaking? then does that mean we then devalue it and their opinion is valid and so we kind of neglect that Roman ruin? So that is always an issue. And issue number two is what if you have different community groups and each group or or each individual has their own opinion about what needs to be done? How do you manage that? So these are the kinds of questions that I find myself addressing nowadays which I'm more aware of because I am on ground so it's very nice to be both in you know the academic and the practice worlds yeah absolutely
1: and turning to a bit of your specific work you've written extensively about the Marcus uh, Aurelius gate preservation practices can you summarize your ideas about that and what is happening there
2: the Marcus Aurelius Arch is a good example for the issues of different groups having different opinions. And I think it exemplifies also the difference between expert views and local community views. So the Marcus Aurelius Arch is located in the old city of Tripoli, right at the seafront. It is the only remaining Roman ruin that is visible above the ground. Um, There is a Roman and Phoenician city beneath the ground, all buried and not yet excavated. So, this Roman arch, the Roman ruin, um, nowadays, if you do visit the old city, you would find that it is very nicely excavated and exhibited, a lot of spotlights, almost like a ceremony as you approach it. You go down some stairs, it is beneath the general ground level for the rest of the site. But it was not always like this. So, if we look at history, just before the Italian uh, occupation of Libya in the nineteen in nineteen eleven, before that, old photographs revealed that the the Marcus Aurelius Arch, the Roman ruin, used to be integrated within the um, environment, the the physical fabric of the of the site. So there were buildings touching it, like right next to it, and it was also uh, closed from all four sides. By local communities at the time, so one research that i 've done is I looked at uh, old traveler diaries and and old books of people visiting the site, and they provide those books that literature provides the only ethnographic records of how the local community before the Italian conservation of the art, how the local community interpreted and how they used that Roman ruin so it is um When we say a roman ruin therefore it is an archaeological object kind of an archaeological ruin within a old city and the difference is when we talk about archaeology it's something that we nowadays conserve just like the italians did after 1911 we conserve it we put a zone around it uh, we limit local communities interactions with it and it's almost like museumified. So there's less function, but more observing and appreciation from a distance. While an old city is, is a living site, people still live there. They it, it is still functional. It is very much part of, of people's uh, daily lives. And it is usually transformed and appropriated by the people according to their functional needs and also cultural interests sometimes. So this is exactly what happened before the Italian conservation in 1911. The conservation was actually began in 1930s, but the occupation of the Italian in 1911. We'd notice from old photographs and descriptions and books that uh, local community used the Roman ruin as a very mediocre functions, really, as a shop for spices and dried fish and storage and whatnot. And like I mentioned, it was very much integrated physically with the rest of the site. So there was no space around it like what we see today. So it was almost hidden within the Medina, reincorporated within the Medina, which is not how it used to be in Roman times. In Roman times, it was just a triumphal arch um, built to exhibit the The grandeur of of Marcus Aurelius at the time and to celebrate him, etc. So immediately, one would think that if the ruin was integrated and closed and used for those mediocre functions by the local communities in earlier centuries, therefore it was devalued. And this is exactly how it was described by many of the books at the time. Um, for example, uh, a narrative of ten years' residence by Miss Tully, who lived in Libya in Tripoli for ten years, and described the arch uh, and how communities used it. And many others. They one I do not recall exactly which book, but one of them mentioned that it is a slaughter of the beautiful. And I quote: "A slaughter of the beautiful," referring to how local communities. Used the arch and seemed like they did not really value it or care for it so much. However, in other books, incidents were mentioned where twice in history, rich people or the elite, and, and also I think once governors of Tripoli wanted to destroy the arch and use its marble for you know, uh, building their own properties somewhere. But the local community stood against that they prevented that from happening. And one way by which they prevented that from happening is that they, they, changed, they transformed its function from a shop into a, a mosque. So the arch was at some point in history used as a mosque just to prevent it from being destructed. So there was a valuing of the arch. However, there were two different interpretations. So Western visitors prioritized its aesthetic value while the local community prioritized its functional value, yet both valued it as historical kind of monument. In fact, some books also record that the local community associated, well, they used to say that if the arch was, because it was so old and it was there for so long, then if the arch was ever destructed or harmed, then that is a bad omen for Tripoli and but then that was a local community interpretation we already see two different interpretations between generally generally the local community and the visitors maybe also related to their different cultural backgrounds and yet i'm very careful when i say when i generalize between the groups because there may be individuals in either group who have different opinions however that if we assume that that is one general group there is another group after 1911 the italians who then completely transformed the arch by conserving it so what the italians did at the time is that they excavated the arch and and restored it to how it used to be in roman times so that meant removing all of the native architecture around it surrounding it including native architecture that meant something for local communities that had history associated to their personal memories and their personal identities and yet the italians destroyed everything surrounding the arch to liberate it. And also they removed the walls that were created and they um, excavated it. So because it was buried halfway beneath the ground, I believe three meters or something beneath the ground, they dug it out. So now you, as you approach the arch, you would go down a series of steps and would have no other function other than to admire the arch as you approach it. There was no other function nowadays. And the purpose of this conservation by the Italians was to exhibit the grandeur of Roman period and to gesture like a historical right to the land somehow. So it was a very politically driven uh, restoration and it was based only on experts of course, no consideration to the native local community perspectives, no consideration to the local architecture either that was just destroyed. So I think the Marcus Aurelius Arch really presents a good example for what critical heritage studies is arguing for, because very often we have two very different opinions. In this case, it is quite extreme between local communities and colonial perspective. So yeah, this is this is a, a really interesting site, I think, and it tells us a lot. And there's a lot also to do with how the colonial conservation of the arch then later influenced local communities' interpretation of the arch. Because if we compare local communities' interpretation and uses of the arch before the conservation, compared to the uses of the local communities nowadays, which I observe, um, it is... A complete contrast, because nowadays people see it as a monument, just as it used to be in Roman times. It has no function. It is associated to Roman times. So there is no link between personal memories or personal identities with that arch. It's just museumified and connected to the Italians and the Romans. And yet it lies within a medina where the rest of the medina, even culturally with all of the mosques in the courtyards, there is a personal reference, there's a personal link between personal identities and memories and family memories, etc. But not with the arch, it's just there to look at and admire and take a lot of photographs with. So there is no day ever of any time of the year where I go to the old city, and I do not find young people under the arch taking pictures of it. But there are some personal memories nowadays associated.
1: Is there a perchance a specific instance
2: where a resident of the old
1: city is personally involved in preservation of these sites or anything like that? Is there, are there any stories or any examples of how residents are taking part of this as well?
2: So if we're talking about the conservation process of the Marcus Aurelius Arch that happened in the 1930s by the Italians, then text records of that process do not record any kind of inclusion of local community at any point, decision making or the practical conservation. Although in some photographs, uh, they seem to be Libyans, they seem to be locals who are helping in excavation, so as labor. However, I've recently had an interview with a senior resident at the Old City, he's about 80 or so years of age, And he remembers when he was a child, he used to play with his friends around the arch, as children still do nowadays. And he very fondly remembers a time when the Libyan Conservation Authority in, I can't specifically remember, maybe in the 60s or 70s, they noticed that there was a tiny palm tree that was beginning to grow out of the rooftop at the top of the Roman ruin, and he was asked as a child to climb up there and remove it before it causes any damage and he still now after all of these years very vividly remembers that memory and also is very proud in the way he was talking about it also his facial expressions completely changed he was very proud of the fact that he participated in sustaining the, um, the Roman ruin by climbing and removing that palm tree.
1: To finish up, what are some of your ideas and avenues that you're thinking of for future research and how you'll continue to take cultural heritage studies into, into future plans?
2: I think the, there is still so much to study and understand about the critical heritage field in general, globally. But also there's so much that this course and this field of study can give locally for the old city and for Libya in general. So first thing, globally, um, as an emerging field, critical heritage studies, it, there's a lot of questions yet to be answered, and, and of course, in academia, no questions are really ever answered fully. There are always more questions. but I think there are fundamental Bridges between academia and practice questions about the practical aspect of the critical heritage discourse that need to be raised, such as how do you manage the democratization of heritage, as I mentioned earlier, because if we take the old city of Tripoli as a case study, for example, there are different social groups, there are different stakeholder groups uh, that engage with the site nowadays, and each group has a different interpretation and different interests with the site. One group want to museumify the site, but another group want to use it as a place of residence. And so how do you manage these different interpretations if you want to democratize it and allow everyone to interpret it and to use it as they wish? Because then the residents will keep transforming the site as they have been over the past decades based on their functional needs. But on the other hand, another group that uh, no longer lives in the site, but they associate their memories and their identities to it. And who want to create a, who want it to be a um, like an open museum and to preserve it as it is with no transformations. These transformations really upset them. And they think that they should not happen. They think that the site of their grandparents and their parents and their childhood should be kept as is, like a, the a pause in history and should be preserved forever this way and not changed in any way as a historical site so there is a lot of conflict between the two there's a conflict of ownership there's contestation of ownership contestation of belonging contestation of different contrasting opinions and contrasting interests and so a question to the field is how do you manage these kinds of conflicts that arise from democratization in the case of Tripoli there has been organic democratization. It was not intentional, but the state, the government previously, and over the past years since 2011, because they neglected it, then there was space for anyone to do anything. And so the question again to the field is how do you manage that? But on the other hand, for Libya, which I think is really relevant to uh, the phase that Libya now is, you know, reconsidering all of our policies or legislation our approaches practices etc there since 20 since 2018 there's been a new authority founded in the old city so they currently manage the old city and they are doing unprecedented work they are restoring it like it has never been restored ever in the past there are of course a lot of issues especially to do with the different stakeholder groups as i mentioned but mostly data information understanding that fields like the critical heritage studies field or critical sociology which critical heritage studies leans a lot on so the methodologies of critical heritage studies adopts a lot from critical sociology research data that can be provided by such critical studies can really inform the policies and the approaches and the decisions that management can take nowadays And this is the kind of area that I am beginning to venture into, although there are a lot of challenges, of course. So what I'm, the phase that I'm beginning to enter now is to make use of the research and the interviews that I'm doing and the observations that I am recording. And, you know, the world of academia, where it does not end in conferences and papers that we publish in journals, and that's it. But rather, how do you make use and extract these the findings of this research and translate it into policy briefing documents or policy policy suggestions and provide it to um so i of course connections help (laughs) so i know the people (laughs) who are uh, the decision makers in these in this authority and just to keep supplying this with supplying them with this data the culture of Policy briefing papers in Libya is very new, considering we just you know emerged from a dictatorship and chaos period recently. But it's beginning to be a little bit more familiar. So at least gesturing the idea that even myself as a researcher or as a person from civil society, my role is in the middle between communities and decision makers, and I can help bridge that especially from the bottom up, which then loops us back to the beginning of this conversation where we spoke about how critical heritage studies tries to reverse or argues for the value of reversing the arrow rather than from top down to bottom up. And the way that you reverse that is by supplying the information and providing an understanding of what local communities want, what helps them, and how decisions and approaches and actions and policies can be made to address those and to meet those needs.
0: Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are also available on our website, www.themaghrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to Semat newsletter at www.semadmaghrib.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.